Uh, my guess is you're more of a professional than most of our guests, so we're probably in, in good hands here. Oh, Let's see. No comment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I will say I think you're our first guest with a Wikipedia page. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which I checked out today. Yes, I remember when my son wrote that. I think he was like seven. <laughs> Daddy's so cool. really cool. Daddy drinks a lot. Daddy does it for his job. <laughs> Is gorgeous. Well, I'm just, I'm just going to introduce us, um, get all the business at the top so we I can talk it. about wine. Cool. Hi, welcome to Discorgeous. It's a podcast about wine. I'm Duck. Hi, I'm the dumb one, and our guest today is Eric Asimov. Um, I hope you, I'm not the dumb one. No, uh, uh, you are uh, absolutely not the dumb one today. Kevin is also definitely not the dumb one. <laughs> it, it's a joke that's gotten, I mean, I'm canonically the very stupid one. Um, and uh, if you're listening to this, please go buy tickets to our live show at 21 Greenpoint um, on January 20th, which yep. is a week from when you hear this. Mm-hmm. Um, wine, food, pizza, um, comedy stylings of your favorite wine podcasters. And we're specifically um, choosing wines from small portfolios that are the most affected uh, by the evil tariffs. Um, so if you hate tariffs, please come. Yeah, um, it's a rock against the tariffs. It's kind of like a live aid. Yeah, but more important. Way more important. Mm-hmm. All right, and uh, what are we drinking today? Oh, wow. Um, so, Girard. So, we, we invented this thing called Girard-nuary. Obviously, like, other people have done Girard themes in the past, but we think we really na- nailed it with the title. Mm-hmm. Um, so, this is week two. And what is it about January that lends itself to, to theme drinking or, or not drinking? You, you feel bad drinking in January, so you need to have a reason. No, yeah. Not me. I don't feel bad drinking. <laughs> One feels bad about drinking. January is the month where you need to drink. Yeah. yeah. I, was, I was talking about this with someone else about how like dry January is the worst planning because it's like it's cold. Nothing's open. Uh, there's nothing to do. Like You could just sit around and have a bottle of wine. It seems like the perfect time to do that. So maybe we should do like dry, um, like August or something, where it's like less, you know, there's things, you can go to a park or like throw a Frisbee. Maybe just a dry day when you've overindulged the night before. Yeah. You know? Agreed. It's, Agreed. <laughs> yeah, like, Why make a month out of it? Everything in moderation, including moderation. I, I went like three days without drinking this month, and I was like, I felt so great about myself. I wanted to tell everyone, and it's just like, oh. I just didn't drink from Tuesday till Thursday one week. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a big deal. <laughs> For most people, that's just their week. Yeah. Um, I just came back from uh, Oaxaca. So this is my first uh, wine I've had in a long time. Mm. Are you a Mezcal drinker? You know, um, we just did a Mezcal tasting. Ooh. And I'm just about to write that up. Okay. So, yeah, I love Mezcal. Mm-hmm. And we did a tasting maybe about five or six years ago when when they first started to uh, appear in real numbers. Mm-hmm. And at that time, the, um, the dominant feature was that they were all smoky, mm-hmm. and that became kind of the cliche. They're like Isla single malts. Exactly. Yeah. This was, was fascinating because uh, you know now there's been a, a total explosion, and there are all of these um, very small producers and they're so complex and interesting, and, and smoke is just one feature of it. Mm. And it sort of opened my eyes to, to really how to the complexities of mezcal. Yeah, I, I did a bunch of mezcal tastings, and it's just like it, 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 
not having been alive in Burgundy in the 1950s, I'm just making this up, <laughs> but I feel like it's what Burgundy in the 1950s felt like. Like, right, like, there's all these negotiants bottling everything, and right. no one's really certain how it's going to internationalize. Maybe Burgundy in the 1910s. I don't know. Yeah, right. But it, felt, it feels I good. I think before 1980 is the same to me. Yeah. <laughs> Classic. Um, what are we drinking right now? Ah, so we're starting with your wine that you brought, Eric. Do you want to tell us a little bit yes. about it? Yes. Um, so the theme, as far as I understand it today, was... Our themes are uh, loose as hell, so yeah, whatever. Yeah, was the uh, Suvois, mm-hmm. the, um, the sort of oxidative uh, Jura wines. Mm-hmm. And I didn't happen to have one handy in the house, but I do have uh, this other really bizarre Jura wine. It's uh, fucking weird, yeah. Yeah. Um, from uh, Philippe Bonnard, and this is a grape that is even like rare in the Jura. Mm-hmm. It's called the uh, the Melon Le Rouge Q, which is sort of some, some mutant form of Chardonnay, mm-hmm. and with the Le Rouge Q, it has like a, a red stem to it. Okay. Interesting. And uh, it's an it's an O seven. Um, so it's been sitting around for a little it's while. Drinking I was really wonderful. curious about it. Yeah. And yeah, it's a little, um, it's, it's not supposedly not a, an oxidative sure. wine. It's not a, uh, a suboil style. And yet it has that, that kind of uh, yeasty, nutty character to it. For sure. It's I mean, part of the round, yeah. Nice. Also, it could be the, like 11 years of age in the bottle, perhaps. Could but be, also, yeah. for me, I think it's an interesting. Um, thing to talk about on this episode because we're talking about you know Suvois and we're talking about like how Jura ended up with this sort of unusual winemaking mm-hmm. style which is like hey it was isolated no one knew what they were doing um, and they kind of just thought this was the normal way to make wine and this also kind of lends itself to how Jura became a sort of bastion for underappreciated grapes or unusual grapes and so this kind of is in that same vein mm-hmm. because this is a weird um, you know, mutation of Chardonnay that like just never was pulled up because Michel there was Gaillet no commercial interest, one too, right? right? I have I, no idea. I think yeah, Gaia has a, a, a Melon de Rouge Q that I was looking for last year. Yeah, unsuccessfully. Yeah, that might be right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's so. Let's let's take a step back. You you famously wrote a very I think big article on the Jura. Was it two thousand seven or eight? Oh uh, six. Oh six. Okay, even earlier than that. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Yeah, thanks for doing that. Yeah, um, made our job. A how lot does easier. it feel? I mean, how does it feel looking back at that to now? The changes that have happened with the Jura. Um, where, where have we come since then? Would you say? Well, I, it's astounding. Um, back when when I wrote that article, I had just visited Jura for mm-hmm. the first and and only time. Okay. And were you I kicked mean, out? Is that why you can't go back? <laughs> that you're not allowed to come back. You know, it's like I don't I don't know what the next story is yet. But um you know when uh when I was there it was like even in France nobody drank the the wines of the Jura. They were considered bizarre. That is we've, so strange. We've talked about this before though, like with Muscadet also. Like France is almost worse than America at having preconceived notions about wine. Like I, I brought a Muscadet yeah, to, to a they, French those, family's those house. Those notions are based on like, hundreds of years yeah. of tradition. <laughs> sure. They so. also have they they get good wine um, 
very easily. So the idea of like seeking out inexpensive muscadets. Yeah, it seems like I brought a nice muscadet to a French family's house, and they were like, "We're not having oysters. Why did you bring this?" And I was like, "Oh, it tastes like Chablis." And they're like, "Oh, you American." But like, <laughs> so like, I think that sort of does make sense that even in France, Jura was maybe overlooked. Except that. Um you know, in in France, they've uh, evolved on mm-hmm. the Jura, so now it's kind of a staple of of natural wine bars. Uh, they haven't really evolved on on Muscadet. We're working on them. Yeah, but um, you, you may know, have heard of Muscadet. It was very important. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember the the first time I had a, a Jura wine was not that long before that mm-hmm. in in '03. When I was reviewing the the restaurant 360, and, mm-hmm. and most people, I mean, that restaurant closed many years ago, so uh, people don't remember how important it was to the kind of uh, to the development of a natural wine culture in New York City. I mean, it was seminal. It was the first restaurant. This was in in Red Hook, Brooklyn, and it was opened by a guy named Arno Erhard, mm-hmm. who had had. You know, sommelier experience and was from from France, from Alsace, mm-hmm. and he was just really into natural wine. That phrase in in the U.S. didn't even exist. I like to, actually in that Girard article that you wrote, you you say hypernatural, and then you say I kind of like that phrase, and it, it struck me as even in 2006 that like the idea of natural or hypernatural or any of this was really really new. Yeah, and you know, back then it was, um, you know, it was not a trend. It was mm-hmm. not the property of a of a you know a group of urban young people. It was mm-hmm. just, it was like a secret handshake that you you had to know where to go and who to talk to. And this guy Arnaud would walk around the restaurant and like you know pick you out as interested in wine. He'd bring something over to you. And I remember he brought he brought Sauvignon. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh, you mean Sauvignon Blanc? No, Sauvignon. And I tasted it, and it was like this, this sherry light. It was bizarre. And I was like, okay, thank you. And I kept drinking it, though. There was something that was really compelling about it. It was, it was both, you know, it had this almost spoiled character. People used to call it rancid walnut. There's a, there's a, yeah. There's a Which gross osity to it. Well, how many rancid walnuts have people been eating? I always think that's funny when like, they have a very specific gross flavor in mind. Well, the French eat a lot of very strange things. Like, that, that, that's right. It's, it's delicacy in the South, you know. <laughs> Rancidity is, 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 is not understood, the attraction. Right, right, but, right. Um, yeah, so this wine like really grew on me, mm-hmm. and I started to to see it around. And I remember uh, uh, Neil Rosenthal had a lot of of these wines. Yeah, Kermit sure Lynch does. hated them, mm-hmm. really, and and didn't bring any. Oh, he of loves Vermentino, so mm-hmm. that's that makes sense. Yeah, Kermit. I don't know too many um, white wines from Kermit Lynch that I'm like nuts about. I know, I'm. Instantly, I'm regretting making a statement yeah, like that. Oh, like that posterie, man. Yeah. It's just horrible. I got it. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, cut that. Cut that. Um, but yeah, no, I, but yeah, yeah, Neil Rosenthal is like the guy when it comes to Girard. I mean, to lots of you things. You know, he had he, uh, Poufini mm-hmm. back then. Yeah. I mean, this was, nobody knew mm-hmm. about it. He had Poufini. Joe Dressner mm-hmm. was bringing in Auvernois. Really? Yeah, and uh, he actually is still he? is. Oh, I mean, or yeah. Louis Dressner is now. It's um, it's right. you know, it's very academic who's bringing in Auvergnat because you know, I'm not going to see it anywhere. Right, right. You know, he brings in the six bottles that get here, mm-hmm. but um, yeah. So that that was my 
um, introduction to it. And then, uh, do you, are you familiar with the art of eating? Uh, back, it was, it's a uh, great and uh, important food periodical by okay. a guy named Ed Bear, B-E-H-R. I know him. And I guess he started in, in the 90s. He was the first one that um, uh, I saw who, who had written about the, um, you know, the battle in Beaujolais, the crisis in Beaujolais, uh-huh. and, and how these, you know, what came to be known as the Gang of Four mm-hmm. was, was trying to uh, keep, go- keep, keep it going. And he was the first one that I saw who had written about uh, the Jura. Mm-hmm. And he always goes like super in depth, and you know it's not just the wine, but I mean he spends hours with the people, and then the food. So you have an equally long article on Comte and you know recipes, which we we have right here. Let the records just show because the listeners can't see it that we did bring cheese and bread. And what else did you buy, Kevin? And the, olives, just in case. And come on. And I bought the cheese board and the knife. <laughs> <laughs> It's yeah, a very nice piece of slate. We're in a breather space, which is really uncomfortable. Um, I, I, did you, there's like business happening out there. I feel bad because I have a really hooting laugh, so I'm trying to not unleash it. Um, but this is going to be very subdued. Yeah, but you can you can take the knife if you want. I, I no, I I, it's I, a, I don't mean I mean no harm. It, <laughs> not for protection, as a souvenir. Yeah, it's our gift. Have a glass of wine. Think about it. You can have that knife. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so so you're introduced to Jura, and obviously, I think the 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 introduction for most people is this oxidative underfloor souvois style. Um, and, but and then strange, there's so much strangely, more. Strangely, it was the first one that I really appreciated, and it took me a while to uh, to see beyond that to mm-hmm. all the other wines that that are available there, and, all, and the beauty of those wines. Yeah. Well, I mean, so last week, our episode with Amanda Smeltz, we did, um, you know, topped off whites. And I think the, the, the conclusion we came to was, like, this is stunning terroir. There's so much energy there. There's so much those. energy. Yeah. This is yeah. Burgundy without Burgundy. It's, it's, it's just alive and, 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 and beautiful. And yet, here we are drinking. Well, right now, we're drinking probably a topped off but wine a, that has some oxidative It is gnarly as hell. There's, yeah. like, this is not a... Um, not an easygoing wine, like compared to last week, where it's easy to power through three bottles of wine. Mm-hmm. Also, it's eleven thirty. True. <laughs> <laughs> Let the record show. This is the earliest we've potted. Um, great. Well, so so when you're writing your kind of first article about the Girard, and you went and visited, what were what were the big insights that you drew? Um, what what struck you the most being in the Girard? Well, um, these were people in in the Jura who were carrying on um, traditions that had not received much outside acclaim. Um, There was no kind of uh, national, forget about international Mm -hmm. validation of what they were doing. There were there were there was no La Pole for the Mm -hmm. for the Jura people. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know. There were no cult Jura wines, mm-hmm. as there are now. And, um, and so they had to really believe strongly in what they were doing. And uh, this has always attracted me uh, as, uh, as far as writing. People who are devoted to, to their own vision or their, uh, their cultural traditions 
and who believe in them, even if they're not uh, well paid or or compensated in some other, you know, uh, in some other way. Poofney had to uh, work as a cheese merchant for a while while he was um, uh, starting out because there was so little interest in his wines. Yeah, I mean that's a, it's an old story, you know. Go to Cornas and and you know, uh, Noel Versailles was a worked for the railroad company for decades, and and uh, because nobody cared, it's and, astonishing. And, and and but these uh, but people persevere, and I I'm always uh, amazed by that and and drawn in, mm-hmm. and and also because I loved the wine, so I wanted to turn people onto them. Mm. How much do you think the current discourse about Jura is um, is the work of of wine critics in New York? Um, uh, Specifically you, but not not putting you on the spot. Uh, I'm bringing this up because in our um, DMs this week, uh, a a friend of ours, uh, Stagiaire Wine, who's a winemaker in California, and uh, did a stage in the Jura, was talking a lot about how... uh, Americans seem to have the wrong idea about the Jura because we have all these culty producers. So um, we think of Suvoal wines. We think of big, like high-intensity wines. But actually, the, like most regions in France, the, the average winemaking is kind of just like average, easygoing whites. Um, how much, so how much do you think like, the, we're living in almost like a critic's fantasy, if that makes sense? Well, I think it goes beyond that. You know, we um, in in this country we typically cherry pick, of course, and and you know in every kind of uh, field, mm-hmm. and it's not just um, critics; it's sommeliers, it's importers, and so you know we're it, whatever. If we're attracted to something, it's it's what it's because of what we've been exposed to, mm-hmm. and so we we look for that. But the you know the the really interesting thing is that it hasn't just stopped with the the Suvoir wines mm-hmm. the 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 most intense and most unique experience. It's mm-hmm. it's gone to to the Reds. Yes, and if you look at the you know back in in two thousand and six, that was the the height of the the Parker. You know, fruit bomb, high alcohol, uh, overripe kinds of wines. So gets a little bit. <laughs> well, you know, back then mm-hmm. these were especially, especially uh, Pulsar. Mm-hmm. These are like really pale reds, mm-hmm. which yeah. went completely against the the grain back then, and they were much lighter and and. Um, you know, they just didn't have the the, the fruitiness that mm-hmm. that people Americans seemed to crave at the time. Um, you know, was absent. But then you had people in, in the U.S. winemakers like uh, Arnett Roberts mm-hmm. or, or uh, Tegan Pasolacqua who were really drawn um, to the Reds and started making their own versions of, of Trousseau. Right. I, well, I, I think like, that's interesting. Like, and this is almost trite at this point, but I. I I always tend to make music comparisons when I talk about wine, but it's similar to that idea that like, um, you know, that, that book, our band could be your life. Like there are certain bands that are more important or, or like the story of like the velvet underground was, was the most important band in, in the fact that it inspired other bands later to sound like them more so than it ever had any cultural impact at the time. Um, so I think, I think that's sort of something that we're talking about here where it's like, 
these, these Poussards and these Trousseaux were inspiring other winemakers to follow in their footsteps. And maybe that helped to, to like raise the idea of these wines in people's wines eventually down the road. But at the time, they still were probably undervalued and underspoken totally. about in the Parker years. Do you I mean, remember how much you paid for this? Not to be like a, a, no. a label freak, but I, I, I do recall so many stories about all of these wines um, being given away at some point. Yeah, I mean, these were all like, you know, max $20 bottles or whatever. Lovely. I, don't, I don't remember what I paid for that, but I certainly bought, uh, you know, Montborgo and, and, and Pouffigny mm-hmm. and Auvernois, and, and, you know, you could find it back then. You know, another thing is I, I think that the um, mm-hmm. the cultiness, the popularity of these Suval wines gave um, producers in other areas permission in a way to start experimenting too absolutely you know the i don't think um you know this this was kind of a found style like uh like the first sparkling wines Uh i mean it was like outsider art you know (laughs) it's an accident you know they you don't know what happens i'll have to go to Uh, champagne and tell them they're an accident it's my favorite thing to do i mean else well are you familiar with the works of wesley it's not an accident (laughs) but pet mat was (laughs) do you know uh wesley willis oh yes no um he's a an outsider artist um does he's Terrible keyboard tracks. Um, I think he had schizophrenia. He did, yeah. He actually um, has a song called I Have Schizophrenia. Okay, so yeah, yeah. I, I know he has schizophrenia. Yeah. Um, and I had a very lo-fi, um, deranged music. And um, yeah, it, it, it's accidentally quite brilliant. And I, I, I do think of that a lot with the wines of the Jura, which is like, oh yeah, this would not have re- like, you wouldn't have created this. I wonder about this a lot, too, in the idea that like, it's sort of sucks that that will never happen again in a way like i think about new york state wines and i i want them to get better and they are getting better mm. but i i imagine that they're part of the difficulty is that they're they're striving to be great now and they don't have the benefit of waiting 300 years to accidentally become great does that make any sense i i I absolutely i think one of the great uh, the worst things you can do is, is um, strive to be great, mm-hmm. you know. It's a, it's, and you see it. I mean, it's like the Napa Valley disease. Oh Jesus Christ! I mean, yes, you just any time a winemaker says, "Well, I'm," you know, especially a mm-hmm. new, inexperienced one. I'm gonna, I'm trying to make wines that stand up with mm-hmm. the greatest wines. It's like, yeah. you know, just mm-hmm. shoot me. Yeah. Napa producers being like, I, I, I want to learn how to make kind of like the best wine yeah. from this <laughs> acre of land. Yeah, 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 yeah. That I understand. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but I'll figure it out. We, I, I think the, the one of the problems with American winemaking, which we will all be drinking very soon, only because of these damn tariffs, um, is the uh, there's not a, a culture of table wine here. Exactly. Uh, so there is no way, kind of like, of there's no B league. You know, like if mm-hmm. you're making wine, you are making like it has to be wine with a capital W. Everyone's trying to be well, LeBron James, and, and, and no worse, one is being Jeremy Lin. Worse than that, you know, it, it, the B league is all trying to make imitation A league. Yes. So if if Napa Cabernet gets accolades mm-hmm. and, and you know you pay a lot of money for it. The people in the in the uh, Central Valley and and other areas mm-hmm. are just trying to make imitation Napa Cabernet. I mean, not and to come so, out as like very anti globalization, but like um, it is. I I feel like we're in still a, a weird wine scene because like everything has to be referencing um, other things. 
and there's not so many like little. Po- I, I, perhaps the Jura was the last pocket. Although I'm curious to think to ask you if there's any places you think are making beautiful wines akin to the Jura that we haven't heard about yet. Akin to the Jura, not akin to the Jura, like as in making wine similar, but oh, like a I, bizarre I think, outsider. I think we have tons of discoveries. I mean, you know, what do you know about Croatian wine? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I went to Croatia. Um, I drank a lot of wine on church steps. Um, uh, I don't know a lot. I mean, I've never been it's there, fun. but I've had a couple of of really interesting wines from grapes I've never heard of. Yes, yeah. So, I mean, I think there there's a lot to uh, to be discovered. Even in France, there's a lot to be discovered. The I mean, I, can you? How many? Grapes can you name from the Savoie? In you uh, know, three, <laughs> you know, there's a lot more mm-hmm. there that we don't really know about, right? And it's so, and, and it has a sort of similar, um, I think, existence to the Jura and that it's just overlooked. It's considered like these apres ski wines, mm-hmm. and people aren't thinking about it. At I all. think they're they're due. Where for did you their learn the phrase apres ski? Kevin? You know, when I'm just in the Alps, just like <laughs> doing a couple of. <laughs> couple of runs in the I, early morning you know that is the most incongruous statement i've ever heard you say i feel like you're reading a wikipedia page about savoir wines okay. i'm just like doing my fondue at night okay, I'm just i see like, you yeah. man but you know one just to get back to the um you know table wines mm-hmm. i mean that's the beautiful thing about european wine mm-hmm. cultures is that you have all of these these wines of place and these traditions of place. And you have people who say, you know, I know I can't, my wine, my Dolcetto mm-hmm. is never going to be as great as, as Barolo, but it's really good Dolcetto, mm-hmm. and that's what we make here. Yeah. And, and there's pride in that, just as in, in Beaujolais. Mm-hmm. You know, they're never going to be, they know they're never going to make as much money as in Burgundy, although things well, are changing. Trying. Yeah, yeah. They're trying real hard. Yeah, you've seen their prices go up, just, just a little just bit. changing. Have you seen any $75 Dolcettas yet? I mean, it's, it's not as... I mean, uh, yes, yeah. as a matter of fact. <laughs> I, I can show you Jan Bertrand's price sheets right now. They are going, oh. Um, um, yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think there's also this... Um, I think somehow in the translation to English, or at least in America, like table wine, it develops a negative connotation. And maybe that's like that American ideal of exceptionalism that's mm-hmm. bullshit, where like anything less well, than striving it, for greatness isn't worthy. You know, it's we don't have wines of tradition, uh, particularly after Prohibition. We have wines of entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And who's going to like choose to make a wine that they can't make any money with or make Next just finance a little pros. bit? <laughs> but you know, the the great thing is that now that's the solution that that young people who couldn't afford land in California came up with. Mm-hmm. So you have people like like Brock Sellers yeah. or or Arnett Roberts who. You know, they don't have to. They don't have to pursue Valdegay anymore. But, right. Uh, we go to the hobo wine. The the, the California Gamay, the Valdegay from uh, hobo wine is still right. one of my favorites. Right. right. Yeah. Or yeah, you can you can pursue it still, but under its own terms. Yeah. And the problem is, you know, because the the producers get a little bit of fame, those prices go up, and you can't really you can't really afford a, a Valdegay mm-hmm. from. From yeah, Brock Sellers. Isn't that depressing? <laughs> um, I've just started getting priced out of a lot of things I like. Um, yeah. Like I, I, I've moved from uh, Morgones to Bouise now, and it's just like wow, what a it, slide! Yeah, my life Backsliding. sucks. 
Um, can we just speak about the wines? Yeah. I, I first I thought the first wine was a little um, weird until we got into the second one, <laughs> and then I I haven't had an oxidated wine for a while. Yeah, they're fucking gorgeous. Yeah, they're so bizarre. So Demain Montbourgoy, um, 2014 Le Trois Cuvée Special. Um, so this is I I imagine you maybe visited her when you were in the Jura. I did. Um, she's third generation. Uh, her three sons are also kind of waiting in the wings to take over. This I bought at Chambers. This is one of those awesome bought on the gray market Chambers offerings that mm-hmm. wasn't too expensive. That you're just like, oh, cool. These wines, I'll buy this aren't for forty dollars. Pricey, yeah. The, this these, these wines are always good buys. I think, in, in relatively speaking, yeah. they've never gotten uh, Montbargo has never gotten the same kind of acclaim, and she's always a little bit under the radar. But her wines are are really great. Are they? Um, are they growing organically? Yes. I, the impression I always got from them is that they were a bit more conventional, but maybe it's just their label. It's going, I think, going off of the Neil Rosenthal website, mm. which actually is one of the good ones. Madrose.com. <laughs> Madrose.com, which I love. Yeah. Um, organic for sure. And vinification is natural, but I don't know what that means in terms of sulfides, if that's just meaning yeast. I don't, I don't think she's a no sulfide. I would doubt that. Very, that very would be heaven, a heavenly. wild flex. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I actually was um, given a bottle of this for my 28th birthday. Yeah. Um, when Canonically, I'm 22, so that's actually the future. <laughs> but um, uh, Of this exact vintage. Uh, it was right when I started at Rowan. Um, right. We used to be um, cider distributors, mm-hmm. which is why we're so smart and cool. And... Um, I remember it was like the last wine I drank um, before I started working in cider. Yeah. Uh, it's developed a bit in the bottle. It has indeed, right? Uh, and I'm also a grown-up now. Yeah. <laughs> so when you drank it in, that was 2015 then, or in 2015? Yeah. Um, was, it, did, was it fresher? Oh, was well, it maybe, flabbier? Maybe, was maybe, it? maybe it wasn't the 2014 vintage. Okay. Let's, let's not get, get myself caught out in a lie. Yeah. It was this bottle. I think it was a 2014, but who knows? Um, right now, it does seem like there's a little bit less fruit than last time I encountered this, and it seems to be like... It feels very much drink me in the next three or four years on this one. I wouldn't... Yeah, I wouldn't disagree with that. Um, but that's sort of nice. They also had a like a 2008... Um, a different cuvee from them um, that I almost bought instead. It was about $20 more. But it's that's the cool thing about Chambers when they do these offerings. It's like, oh, we did the aging for you or yeah. someone did the aging for you and we bought it and now you can just have it and drink it. I, I, I can't imagine buying a wine in 2007 and just sitting on it. I mean, I have about six cases of wine and I, I still is- expect most of them to be drunk the next three or four years. Congratulations on well, your Well, especially patience. with just one bottle. Jesus. I mean, it just kind of got uh, pushed Do you buy bottle by bottle or do you buy, buy cases? It, for it's not very, work, for very your life. rare that I buy cases anymore because usually the, ones, the wines I want to have cases of I can't afford. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Is New York Times doing that yeah. badly? I'm so sorry. <laughs> Maybe you should become uh, working well, you know, opinion column. The, the, the Times is, is happy to afford the wines I'm, I'm drinking for a story. Mm-hmm. They're not yeah. happy to, to, ah, to pay see. for my collection. So you don't have a writer that they have to... <laughs> have you considered duplicity? Um, that's actually how I buy most of my wines. <laughs> Nobody uh, does that just, with their right, expense those, account. Oh, never. Oh, I would gosh. never do that. No, no, no. Uh, only business. Yeah. Um, by the way, this is officially a business. <laughs> yeah. I did write this one off too. <laughs> um, yeah. So 
sorry, yeah, can you pour me some more as well? Mas Vino, as they say um, in Mexico. Latois, we haven't talked about Latois at, at all because we didn't have any last um, last episode, but this is a pretty small area in the Jura. I believe it's like 52 acres or hectares total. Okay. Um, nine of which I believe um, these guys are farming or at least own. So I've never um, seen a wine from there that's not uh, th- th- this producer, actually. I think this is, this is the one I've seen the most, yes. for sure. Yeah. I mean, who knows who else makes wine there and, and why it's not here. Well, I'm but. sure Pelican has some. Um, this region, which means star... Yes. Either named because there's starfish in the soil or because there are five hills that make the shape of a star. One or the other, you pick. Wow. That's the beauty of France. <laughs> <laughs> you get to choose your character. Is this, this is a Sauvignon? Uh, Chardonnay. Okay, fine. Yeah, so everything they do is not topped off. Behind the veil, as they say. I, I find that really bewitching. Uh, we were talking earlier uh, off the mic. What's so interesting about um, uh, the oxidative wines from the Jura is that uh, they, they are oxidative, but they, um, they develop a biological filter as well. So it's to a point. Like, we don't really get the same brownosity you'd find in a Montiato sherry. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they, there's a bit of protection. Um, so it is, it's preserved. It's not fully, like, um, fucked to death by oxygen. It doesn't get to that Amontillado no. stage. I wonder how long this would be good out of the bottle. Like, would you, in a world where you could pour this by the glass, would you be able to get three days out of it? Mm, I don't know. I mean, my understanding is if, oxi- if it's already oxidized and it's been in the bottle for a while, that could offer some protection. But it's I'm, not going to get any weirder. Right. Well, it could. I really like it. Yeah. I think it's really good. And I can't, you know, it's, it'd be interesting. Um, do they make they make a Sauvignon too? Oh yeah, yes. they do. They do be a lot of different to, like, single to compare them, yeah. uh, same vintage, just to see whether you can tell the difference or whether the the uh, yeast character is just completely oh, overwhelming. Takes over. Yeah, we we talked about this last episode, um, and one of the things that we um, kind of hit upon was that it it, it does seem that Souvoile uh, 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 tends to erase some components of terroir. Like the fresh Jura white seems so much more... Like you can really tend to see the differences between the Appalachians and the mm-hmm. grapes. Whereas I feel like a lot of times the overwhelming note for these are the process. Which yeah. is... It's weird slotting them into the natural wine camp. Um, they always are. Like natural wine places love the Jura. But it's not exactly the same idiom of natural wine that, say... Um, uh, you know, Burgundy would be that, working with that. That uses carbonic maceration <laughs> exactly. and makes it taste the same from everywhere. Oh, come on! That was my next point. Yes, of course. Yeah, Beaujolais. You're just tasting the grapes and the carbon dioxide. Yeah, but I think that's. I think what we're always dealing with when we talk about that is transparency and history. Mm-hmm. And to your point, you mentioned earlier that the growth of Jura within sort of the zeitgeist of natural wine has, has opened the door for other winemakers to experiment with this process. And that can be both a blessing and a curse. I mean, I think, I think about all of the awful amphora wine I've had from oh non-historically amphora regions. And not all of it's been bad. But What are the historical amphora regions? <laughs> like ancient Greece? Yes, exactly. You know, I, I think that um, if you were to go back in history, you would find... This is a suspicion, not something mm-hmm. I've researched, but you would find that um, many more areas had a, a tradition of, of 
aging wine under under floor, under yeast, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. uh, under the veil, mm -hmm. and uh, most of them just kind of you know got rid of it because it was seemed so archaic and and uh, bizarre. Um, I know that's true in different parts of Spain. Oh yeah, and you know you've seen people um, in the Loire Valley uh, experimenting with it. But I, I that's what I mean when I, I people have been emboldened to to go back to those traditions and see what they can do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean it's the same story as skin contact or anything else, where it's you have to both acknowledge the fact that this is how wine used to be made. And acknowledge the fact that it's currently trending, and sort of parse the differences and and the importance of both of those against each other. I mean, there's you still have to have a knowledge of winemaking, maybe more so in order to make a successful wine under floor or successful skin contact wine. Um, it's just not as easy as being like, oh, they did it there. I'll try it here. It's not just going to be great. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, it's not going to be the same thing. Which is not to say people shouldn't experiment, but. No, but I think, you know, one of the lessons of natural wine is that, you you know, it doesn't really work as, as a hobby, as something cool to do. It, it, it works if you're a serious winemaker and yeah. you know what mm -hmm. you're doing and you're careful about it. Um, I remember uh, when I was uh, studying French as, a, as a, a high school student, it was all like the precious, very dweeby kids learning French. And then I had my first encounter with the actual French, who were nothing like the people learning about it. <laughs> they were, um, you know, smoking cigarettes and having premarital sex and um, being kind of troublemakers. And I, I think about that with natural wine a lot. Like, um, the idea of a natural winemaker is um, kind of this, this, this chaotic person who's like, oh, you know, the grapes, make, the grapes make the wine, yada, yada, yada. But to be a successful natural winemaker, you have to be way more disciplined than your conventional counterparts because, mm -hmm. like, you have so many opportunities for the wine to, to fucking ruin itself. And you're not using any crutches of any sort to help no, you. No, you don't you you can't fix it after the fact. Right. But like we have like the whole natty bro contingent in New York who are all, you know, high functioning alcoholics who are like, Oh yeah, you know, just put the grapes in a barrel. But like you, you can't actually make wine that way. That's how like you make wine in New Jersey if you're someone's Italian grandfather. <laughs> or a regular grandfather. Yeah. Well, I think there's the, the second part of that that's also true is that people have to sell these wines and selling the wine is telling a story and sometimes that story is an exaggeration or is something that makes that makes you want to buy the wine a little bit more and if you oversimplify things that way to a casual consumer maybe that helps them drink a wine they wouldn't have normally drank and maybe that's a positive too um i don't know with with everything else there's a lot of aspects to it i guess that's a nuanced take. There's a lot of aspects. Wikipedia to this. says, um, Eric, I wanted to ask you as someone who I think sort of famously and to your credit takes a lot of pains to or goes out of your way to write articles about um, how to drink wine under $20, for example, um, which I think is an extremely important and necessary thing in this industry to remember that most people aren't willing to go past that threshold. How do you they feel? They tell me that all the time. <laughs> they, they tell me that constantly. I, I, I ignore them. How do you feel about rising prices in areas like the Jura or rising prices of natural wine? Do you worry at all that this will create a closed community of these wines where now only the same people are drinking them as we're drinking other fancy wines before? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a closed community of, of, of rich people and... Um, you know, it's uh, not to get 
too political here, but please, please do. do. <laughs> please do. Are you going to mention you know, Epstein's Island? I, I am. Speaking I'm not of close communities of rich people, no. Uh, but I am going to mention income disparity. Yes, because you know you see the the same thing. It's done to um, Manhattan real estate. It's done to wine. Yeah. You know, most obviously with Burgundy, where you got a, a bunch of uh, of people with more money than they know what to do with, and they just bid up the price of of what they've decided they must have yep. to to ridiculous uh, heights, and everything else gets more expensive as a as a result. And you know, it ha- it's happened with um, anything. I mean, I remember, um, you know, just. It's less than five years ago. You could buy, you know, a, a bunch of uh, uh, Richard Lois mm-hmm. from from the Loire Valley, mm-hmm. from Anjou. I love those wines. Yes. Now, and, and you could just buy them. Now you can't. If you can find them, you can't afford them. I mean, yeah. That was so, the point of the Loire at one point. Was like, oh, it's right. not that expensive. It's cheap to move there. I can make wine and sell it to the people. Now that's the point of the Ardèche. Yeah. <laughs> <exactly>. <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> so you know, you have. Uh, I mean, I. Uh, uh, Gonan Saint Joseph. Yes, it's, uh, the 2017 is going for 160 dollars a bottle. I mean, mm. that's just that's and ridiculous. Saint, Saint Joseph's no, a trashy and, and one. Probably nobody. <laughs> Jean Gonan would be the first to say how ridiculous that is. Right. And but and, I mean, he would also be kind of. Happy. I mean, like, well, yeah, I'm, it's ridiculous. I mean, but it's ridiculous all the way to the bank. He's probably not getting that mo- no. uh, most of that money because it's it's probably being sold on the gray market and mm-hmm. and. And then, you know, some middle guy is getting it all. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, yeah I, I think that's um, – it's a, it's a really bad thing. And, you know, it's it, – up till now, you know, the saving grace has always been that there's so, so much wine around the world that nobody really knows about mm-hmm. and that you can uh, experiment with. But if these tariffs goes, oh, go through – I mean, that door is closed – Fucking immediately. Yes. Yeah. And then you know we're going to start exploring. It just you know maybe it's lucky that that Chile has like a really interesting little yeah, uh, subculture in, in there's the, such great in, stuff in Valley. So but we're still talking about like seven producers in a country royal by political upheaval, right? Which has its own issues. That, Will like, there be tariffs on cider? Because like this is real. I mean, as we mentioned, this is our time to shine. <laughs> do you like cider, by the way? Um, I do. I just Hell I yeah. um, I just wrote a uh, you know a review of the in my opinion the year's best books about wine and mm-hmm. my oh, yeah. favorite Andy's. book was Andy's. Yeah. Andy's. We, love, books. we love that book. Yeah, he's yeah. phenomenal. Um, yeah. Well, drink more cider. End of story. <laughs> um, I you know it's it's really um, scary though because it's I'm. You know, it's uh, everything that I've been uh, telling people that they they need to do to look outside the you know the kind of the tunnel vision mm-hmm. of, of of wine spectator and and so on. Uh, you know, we're oh. suddenly going to have cut off from us. Yeah, I mean, the, what we've always said is look at the back label, and and now when you look at the back label, like if you think of like the six producer or importers that are like doing really cool niche stuff, they're going to be out of business. Like right. you're not going to be turning around and seeing Camille anymore. Like that's going to be gone. If yeah. these tariffs go through, it's just a matter of time. It's, it's awful that you're going to like cut these people off 
when they're doing this important work and, and have been putting all this blood, sweat, and tears into it for so long. If we back off from the tariffs for mm-hmm. one second, yes. because I'm there, I, I can't even comprehend them, do you ever feel... Uh, is it ever difficult for you to, to mention a new wine, knowing that as like you know, a very powerful wine critic, probably the third most powerful wine critic in this room, um, <laughs> whenever you uh, like highlight a wine, you are maybe signing the death knell for that wine to be affordable. Like... I mean, maybe not in such dramatic terms, but like, if you like something and you put your seal of approval on it, you're not Robert Parker, and thank God. But the, you know, would the Jura have happened if not for you know the work of you and other wine critics highlighting it? And like, what does that mean for things you love being out of your reach because of your I, own? I feel self? like you know that's completely out of my control of course i mean i i um i i don't want to give myself too much credit i don't know i i'm thinking uh, about you know us like all the things we've already destroyed (laughs) i mean you've seen cider prices going yeah cider prices to the roof um (laughs) bad wine from bad natty pet nats from california (laughs) i mean i think that um just puts more pressure on all of us Mm -hmm. to to write about things that are truly good and and to um, you know to be serious about that and not to not to tout things that um, you know have been anointed by somebody else, but we mm-hmm. don't really think are are worthy. Except that that's the conventional wisdom. Yeah. Are there um, any wines you haven't like you've like really loved and said? I want to keep you know. Pure. I'm just like an I, I'm an open book. I've got to churn out a column every week. Oh man, you know I'm not saving <laughs> anything, <your> right? <laughs> you know the but I get attacked a lot for for being an obscurist. That's insane because um, your twenty under twenty is um, it, it's such a uh, who are these people? Have them well, listen to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's one guy from uh, from Chile who who makes wine there, mm-hmm. and he's like, "Oh, you never have any wine from Chile. You never have any wine. You know what's wrong with you?" And so I did. I added a, a couple of wines from. Chile. Oh, great! Now you're adding wines from Chile that nobody ever heard of. And you know, <laughs> I, I think you know, there's a, there's a, a sizable amount of people who think that my job is to validate their tastes. Mm. Bingo. And and it's not. I mean, I, I uh, and you know, you see that a lot from you know, twenty wines under twenty dollars, and you just have two from California. Mm-hmm. What's with that? It's California pricing. You know, yeah. yeah. Well, Maybe there's there's that, but there. I mean, well, you know, you're just anti-American, mm-hmm. right? Oh wow! No, I mean, you know, so I mean, people fans are the worst, aren't they? Whatever, like, all of them—they're so <laughs> fucking terrible. Like the DMs we get are just like, oh. But you know, more more common is like, okay, well, you know, I live in Littleton, Colorado, and and can you tell me where to get that that uh, oh, yeah. Savoie wine? <laughs> well, uh, is, is, just fly to France and <laughs> bring an empty bag to fill. Um, is your column? Is it – who is the ideal reader of your column? Like do you expect them to be in New York and have access to these things or do you no, try hard to have um, – There's not one ideal reader okay. because the, the Times is a, is a paper for everybody, you know, any, any smart, curious person. And I, I imagine those are my readers. Some of mm-hmm. them know a lot about wine. 
some of them know more than I do about certain areas of wine. Others mm -hmm. are, are novices and, and just want to know what they should buy on their way home. And you've got to, you've got to find a way of writing that um, does not offend either extreme right. and, and appeals to them. Um, but I mean, also to a certain extent, it's like it doesn't do any good for you to just keep writing about the wines that they already know about. Like, isn't the whole point? Like, why would you? I'm trying to imagine a scenario in which I want to pick up the paper and read an article that's like, all the wines you like are the right ones. The end. Like, Wait, how does once, that help once would be fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> and then what do you write about next week? It's just like the point in my mind of your article would be, let me show you something you don't know about. Isn't that the well, point of a newspaper? I think it is, and I, I also have the argument, uh, this argument with a lot of people who've, who've decided that if, if they can't find the wine, it's a waste of time. Mm. And I, I've just, I've used the analogy of like, do you ever, you know, okay, you live in, in where, Kansas. Mm -hmm. Do you ever read, you read the New York Times restaurant reviews. Right. Why? Because you want to know what's happening. Mm -hmm. You want to know what's, what's going on in the big city. If you live in New York, you're reading the, the London theater reviews because you're curious about what's Constantly. happening there. Why isn't that true with wine? Why, why can't you say, okay, I can't have this wine now, but it's great to know it's in the world. And if I ever see it, maybe next vintage, maybe if I go to Los Angeles, mm -hmm. to a restaurant, and I'll see it there. I mean, why do you have to have immediate access? There also is you know, more than ever, a network of natural wine importers and distributors throughout the United States who are doing really good work at paying attention to these trends and trying to get, even if it's like three cases of that thing that New York got 17 cases of. But it hangs out there for longer, too. Yeah, and, you, and, and if you're one of the people who's paying attention and you are outside of this market, you can actually almost benefit from the fact that you're one of the few people really tapped in and, and sometimes find some amazing gems. Well, I love doing that, being in a different state and finding the local natural wine shop and being like, you still have this? This has been gone in New York for three years. You know what I mean? It's, it's, I love it. I dream about that. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, um, almost, All 20, day long, you dream almost about 20 years ago, I, I visited the Piedmont region of Italy mm -hmm. and you know, I was going to a bunch of Barolo producers, but I visited a, um, a food cooperative and their reason for existence was to preserve um, heirloom traditions, different grains, different cheeses, and, and things like that, which would be disappearing because you're, you know, you, you, everything is homogenized to a certain degree, more so in food than in wine nowadays. And I had this cheese that came from a, a mountain, mm -hmm. you know, in the hills, somewhere in the hills that I had never heard of, and it was the most amazing cheese. And I said, you know, I wonder if you can get this in New York. And the woman who's, who was the leader said, well, what makes you think you deserve to have that in New York? <laughs> That's an amazing question. Oh, yeah. That's a good answer. <laughs> and I, I didn't have a, a right answer for yeah. that. And I realized, and it's, you know, it's true with, with everything. Um, when you take something out of its traditional place where, where it belongs, where it's been nurtured and, and grown, you're, you're changing it. Somehow, and we we accept some of that. You know, we accept that there's a, a mass production of, of Comte cheese, mm -hmm. and it probably would taste a lot different if you had it from a, a little artisan um, in, the, in the Alps. This is from uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Fairway, 
Yeah. <laughs> and we've noticed you haven't even had a bite of it yet. So before, not yet. I, I mean, why don't you take your knife and have a piece? <laughs> but to so, your point, are you waiting for me? No, yeah, no, 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 no. We we just want. I think I want to make sure you like to it. To your point, but this but is I something th- that I think about a lot. Is is have like have we have we done that to the Jura? Like, are we uh, you know by observing something you change it? So. So how are we responsible for those changes? And how are we, like, like we kind of mentioned, the idea of the Girard maybe has changed because of the wines that New York has decided are interesting from there. I just well, wanna... the, the Girard is probably the most analogous wine region to, you know, some indigenous people somewhere mm-hmm. that, you know, some anthropologists mm-hmm. decided Bingo. to write about. Um, but... But they're also worldly people. I mean, they're not, they're not people who have, have lived in this enclave forever, even though the wines mm-hmm. seem yes. as if they are. Yeah. Um, it's, what's interesting is um, this is for our three listeners who are anthropologists that we all independently uh, uh, rediscovered Marilyn Strathern's uh, theory about uh, the, the museum and the art versus commerce. Uh-huh. Um, three of you guys will get that. I'm not going to explain it, but I'm very happy. <laughs> Oh, this is so You're beautiful. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, this has been a great day. So we're, we're drinking the uh, Jacques Pufny um, 2011 uh, Savignon mm-hmm. as well. Uh, this I got from a basement uh, from Vine Wine. Uh, Talitha, I am like maybe your biggest fan. Um, this is the only episode she said she would listen to because you're on it, so thank you. Um, and it's alarming how many wine stores have basements with things that they don't sell unless you like tell them that... Um, you're coming on my podcast, and they're like, "Oh hell yeah, cool!" Uh, and this was, I think, forty-five bucks, which is a lot. But well, there's obviously no current releases because he's retired. But even, um, his 2014, I'm sure, is skyrocketing. I, I'm sure you can't find that for less than eighty bucks anywhere. Yeah, I was going to say forty-five doesn't seem like a lot for this, and that's part all. of that mm-hmm. part of that fact that we work in this space and we're, we're we understand oh. the value of yeah do not quote me that this is 45 dollars if, if you go there it, it might very now well I, now yeah. i have two glasses yeah. of poofany yeah you're, you're, you're very welcome yeah that's some real king shit right there <laughs> uh I, the seven yen versus the chardonnay yeah is incredible so much more fucking fruit it's um it's really late harvest uh i know that for um poofany his chardonnays were harvested in like late september early october Savignon has this hang time till yeah. November, which is unreal. Yeah, it's like Wyclef Jean said, I'll be gone till November. Exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. we talked a bit about that on the last episode, but like part of the beauty of, of the Jura is this longer hang time, this, mm-hmm. this late budding, which avoids the frost. And it, it's just one of these weird things that makes this region special and unique. And um, yeah, the fruit on this is, I mean, this is my favorite of the three wines we've had so far. Um, it seems to do all the things I want uh, a Jura wine to do, it 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 wears the veil better mm. in a way. I think I think the Chardonnay it's not as dominant. Yeah, yeah the, it, veil. the fruit is piercing the veil. Wow, if you will. Wow, we got Alistair Crowley over here. Um, That's my rap name. <laughs> this is st- so. It, it, uh, we actually had uh, Domaine Pelican uh, last week on the podcast, um, which uh, I, I found very underwhelming. It was, I think. Easily the worst wine we had last time. It was good, but, um, you know, uh, maybe stick to Burgundy. But uh, it's great to see what the same vineyards are doing uh, in the hands of a master, of a pope. Um, 
And he, apparently he's still making wine. He's making 2,000 cases, which is the most you can do under French law. As they never stop. Well, what, what, would he, what would he do? Like, just drink wine? I, it's for himself, mm-hmm. his family, his friends. If you, if you go to his house, mm-hmm. he'll sell you some, no doubt. Waiting for that invite? Yeah. Um, um, come on the pod. <laughs> I would say uh, meeting Jacques Pouffini was one of the most intimidating visits I've ever had. Because he was very... Because of that mustache? Well, you know, he's got his face is buried in this beard. Mm -hmm. And he was very... He just kept staring. And he Mm -hmm. was, you know, kind of taciturn and, and... you know, you didn't. I didn't know if I had offended him with my bad French. Or, mm-hmm. he has but then never he would left break France, out into right? the smile. What? Um, according to um, some websites I read, he has never left France. I, it may be true. Maybe he's never left the Jura. I don't know. That's so cool. Wow. He's like Tom Bombadil. <laughs> I was assuming that maybe speculative fiction would be something that you were interested in. You I would think. I, I'm, I, okay. I, <laughs> one of my best friends from high school did want me to ask you if there's any science fiction you like to read. Is, is that not something that's passed on you know, the familiar I, I, line? No, I've, I've, read, um, I've read Asimov. I imagine you might have, <laughs> yes. And, and his contemporaries, mm-hmm. Heinlein and, and Bradbury and people like that, but I've not kept it up. Okay. Well, sorry, Brendan. I wonder, um, following the lines of, of you being intimidated, um, meeting Poofney, do you feel when you... Do these trips because we obviously do wine trips as well. Mm-hmm. We're all sales reps, so we're there kind of for a different reason. We're there. I'm also an HR director. Sure, we're there. Um, you know, to to learn about the wines. We're there's inherently understanding that like we need to get along because I'm going to sell your wine in New York, mm-hmm. and that's the reason I'm here. And when you're there, there's there's some of that, but you're also a representative of an entire city in a way because you write for the paper of record mm-hmm. in New York. Um, do you ever feel that that gets in the way of your experience or do you ever feel a difficulty navigating that relationship when you meet these producers? If it ever gets in the way, it's, it, it, it that disappears very quickly. Like bottle number three. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not, um, I mean, I think a lot of, of producers, if they don't know me or, or my work, they think I'm there just to do like a whole a, a, a taste and spit mm-hmm. thing and, and, you know, talk about the, the flavors. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm usually I'm visiting people because I'm interested in their story and, and eventually they start talking and most people I visit and, and are... are are happy to share their their opinions and, and thoughts. You know, I've I've visited with people in the trade, and so there's always a little bit. It's a little tense for me mm-hmm. because people in the trade want to get in and out. Yes, and and, and I want to linger and talk. Right. So well, yeah, a lot of <laughs> we've both been on trips where it's like, hey, we have two hours with this incredible producer, and then we have to get in the bus and drive an hour and a half and visit another... Uh, I just spent four days with the same producer. Oh, yeah. It was uh, tight as hell. Yeah. Well, I, I, I recommend doing that more. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, no, also to a certain extent, I feel these trips... I, I always feel in, like nervous meeting a producer with other people because I feel responsible for everyone in my group. Oh, yeah. Where I'm like, because you're the most sensitive. more wine. What are you doing? I'm a very sensitive Scorpio, so... Um, I don't know. It's just very rot for me. Um, so my notes say that you are a cancer. Um, I'm wondering how you think that uh, affects your your wine palate. <laughs> 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 a 
look at us, three water signs in a room. You, you, asked, me, you, you asked me what my sign was, and I really had to think for a minute. Classic cancer. Uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's very classic for you all. You know, all, what, anytime I've ever read a horoscope, I think cancer is always the worst. It's uh-huh. always, you know, Scorpio glo- in the room. Gloomy, gloomy reclusive, <laughs> hermit-like. Do you have co-star? I don't even know it's what a, that it's means. It's an astrology no, I, app? I demand first billing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, touche. Co-Star uh, is our official uh, uh, horoscope app that we, we check every day. One it, of us do. It, does, it tells me something every day slightly mean. It's, it's really mean to me. It, it gives you a, a horoscope reading every day. And if you're a Pisces like me, it's always like, get out of the bath. Like, it's really depressing. You know, I once got a, a fortune from a, a Chinese fortune cookie. Mm-hmm. It, said, it said simply, you have only your own stupidity to blame. Oh, it is true, though. And <laughs> my kids have never let me forget that. <laughs> like, read me. <laughs> um, this, I, so I'm, I'm, I'm back on the Chardonnay for a second. That... The rancid walnut note is actually much more present there, I feel. Like, um, the Sevenian's fruit just shines through so much brighter, I think. But I, I love the intensity of that, that rancid walnut note. I mean, it's really kind of, um, uh, I don't want, piercing is the wrong word, but it's incisive. Blunt. And, and I think it's like great with the cheese. Yeah. I think it, it goes with food really well. And I want to play the it's French still, fries. It's still fresh. Right. I mean, I mean, I think the the seventeen is is reading fresher, which is funny because it's older. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. I mean, going back and forth, it's just there's an extremeness to the um, the Chardonnay that in in its like blunt rancid walnut. It's more you know, energy in the right. in the Sauvignon. Yes, exactly. But, um, when, so. This is also in my notes. Um, when they legalize marijuana in New York, will that be your position? Or who will be the marijuana editor for the New York Times? Oh, not me. Okay. Most definitely not. Um, somebody no, somebody hiring? once asked me, Wait, this you, was about 10 years mm-hmm. ago, they, they asked me to um, start writing a cocktail column for the Times. Oh, boy. And I said, I can't. I just can't. That's terrifying. I mean, I can't. It's just, there's only so much... Alcohol one can imbibe or intoxicant. And <laughs> Notice. Done. Did you read Peggy Noonan's column about having edibles like five years ago? No. It's, it was beautiful. Uh, just, <laughs> just like... It's like, okay, so when some right-wing conservative lock. tries yep. weed for the first time. And yeah. then, That's my favorite trope of the opinion column. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wonder if Peggy Noonan has ever tried Girard. I'd be interested to know. Um, do you hang out with the other New York Times writers? Who's cool? Not, not a whole. They're all cool. I mean, okay. they're so cool you wouldn't believe how cool they are. Um, um, I don't hang out with a lot of them, though, because we're, you know, we all have jobs to do. Okay. <laughs> so you didn't get A.O. Scott in The Secret Santa this year? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I did used to hang out with Frank Pryle because you know, we had the same kind of job. Exactly. He was yeah. my, my predecessor. Mm-hmm. Right. And he's a... a Ultra cool, under-recognized, great wine writer, mm-hmm. smart wine writer who did, you know, he, he understood the soul of wine, I think, in a, in a way that, that a lot of more famous American wine writers did not. Mm. Um, do you hang out with Pete Wells? 
if Pete invites me to dinner, I'm happy to go. Same goes for us, Pete. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Wow. You know, Pete's great, and if I hung out too much with him, you know, I I probably wouldn't be as... um, the magic would would be too familiar. Would you wear the disguise as well when you go out to dinner? Um, when you were a restaurant critic, did you disguise? Never. Not once. I always thought that was kind of the... the uh, the only people who wear disguises are people who want to be seen. Oh, I wow. I always thought. Shit. We <laughs> all a, wear masks. That's, <laughs> that's exactly what CoStar says to me every fucking day. <laughs> I think it would be funny if we started wearing disguises when we went to different places. <laughs> like, shh, it's the disgorgeous guys. Be cool. Send them this plate of French fries. It's what they love. Oh, I would love some See, French I, fries. I believe in method acting. Oh, uh-huh. same. You know, it's like if you, if you want to be, if you don't want to be seen, you have to fade into the woodwork. Oh, man. Dustin Hoffman over here. Um, I think drinking these three wines has been amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, Final thoughts, maybe, on, on this, this region of the Jura? We'll go around the table. Sure. Yeah. Want to start, Eric? Yeah. Um, the the, the um, Bonard wine is interesting because this is the first time I've ever had that grape. Mm-hmm. And anytime you have a, a, a wine like that, you wonder, oh, what else is there that I don't know about? And I've started... I'm, you know, we 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 know now the four typical grapes of, mm-hmm. of the Jura. You know, the two reds, and and the uh, they also have Pinot Noir and and Sauvignon and Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. But what else is there, and what are what are we missing, and what have we what have that we not has like asked about five hundred illegal you know, grapes, right? Uh, <laughs> and I mean, that's that that's that's the question uh, I, I'm left with. I think that. Um, you know, there was always a lot of criticism when Jura, the Jura started to be popular that, oh, it's like, you know, these these sommeliers that are just forcing people to drink their obscure wine so they can prove how smart they are. And, mm. and you know, well. uh, I mean, you've used that, that. That's one of the most tired mm. tropes yes. in wine. You know, we're all victims of, of, of the attention-seeking sommelier. And, I think a lot of that is just built in people feeling like they're not supposed to be able to enjoy wine. Like you, it's, it's meant to be this closed club. But I think we could do more. But if you, just, well, that, you know, that, was, that, that was the point of view of yeah. the, the Parker people mm-hmm. who, you know, you, you know, who, who would scream that they you know, these grapes were ignored for so long for a reason. What's Parker uh, like? Um, well, if you meet him in person, you, you, I haven't seen him in a long time, but he is actually one of the most personable Funny, friendly, smart guys, oh, I hate but that. you know it's just uh, you know it's uh, it's just that when you're when that disappears and you just become this peevish, mm-hmm. angry guy, then you know that's kind of we're left with that. Yeah, the bad taste in the mouth. The Reagan of wine. Did that feel that felt right to say? Oh. <laughs> um. Final I'm, thoughts for you? I, um, it's weird. Uh, I think it's, it, the, the idea of, of, of these being forced on us by sommeliers is so interesting because Psalms can't make people drink anything. Like if you look at a, a – if you go to like 
dinner on a Friday night, which perish the thought. You go to dinner on a Wednesday, obviously, if you want good service. But you go on a Friday night and you see like the bridge and tunnel crowd. Psalms can't get anyone to not drink Chardonnay. Like they can like cut the markups. They can like offer free glasses, and there is no one who's going to drink a Chenin Blanc. So the idea of Psalms pushing people to drink the Jura is it's cute. You know the the scary meme about. Psalms is not that they're pushing you to to drink the Jura. It's that they're sneering at you when you order Sancerre. Yeah, well, I mean, like, they have very little other pleasures. Being a sommelier, <laughs> like, being able... Sneering, doing cocaine. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, what else are they going to do? It's, like, the sad... Like, all this knowledge, and you're like, well, this is the second most buttery Chardonnay for yeah. you, monsieur. Medium, <laughs> medium plus on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, um, oh, you want new ones? Here you go. <laughs> uh, I think all these ones. Going back to the uh, Melon uh, Rouge Q is really interesting because you see, we 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 seem to have naively done these in the exact right order, which is right. like a, 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 un peu de oxidation and mass oxidation and <laughs> mucho oxidation. Um, it's really lovely just seeing like. What the what it does like yeah. that the the fruit is now showing on the the first wine in a way that it didn't before because it, it it felt very self consciously weird. Um, I would like all of these wines with uh, again with with French fries, possibly with cheese on them. It is also amazing that the darkest color of all three is the first bottle, and you wonder is that. Um Part of the mutation mm-hmm. is yeah. there kind of like a pinot gris, rosy a red, looking thing if going a red stem, on? Or does that mm-hmm. kind of drip down onto the skin a little bit and have an orange color to it? I don't know. Um, something I, I I heard in in Oaxaca, which I, I really like, is that mezcal changes every couple months, mm-hmm. like very 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 rapidly, and I I feel like wine does as well. But we are, we're so much more tied to criticism and to making statements about things that we pretend it doesn't. Sure. But I mean, how often have you had like a bottle that was really great and then like Two weeks later, you, you revisit it. It's like, this isn't the same wine. I mean, as sales people, I think it happens to me a lot. And it's very frustrating where I'm like, oh, this wine is so good right now. And I talk it up for a week and I take it out again and it tastes completely different. Honestly, can't, can't identify with that. <laughs> My portfolio, very solid. Cool. Living very wines. Very stabilized, very, very dense. Yeah, they're all, it's like a museum. They're all, <laughs> they're all ghosts of wine. Um. Yeah, I agree with you that I think this like the journey between these three bottles was pretty perfect. Um, I, I enjoy all three, and I want them for different reasons. But I, this might be one of the best three wine lineups we've ever done, um, and we possibly spent more than we normally do on our three bottle lineups anyway. But um, yeah, I would say like to your guys's point, the Jirab has been you know pushed by nerds for a long time but they're not wrong like there's a reason why nerds are cool and smart even jocks would like these wines i think so and honestly i think i don't think it's i think what 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 drives me crazy is that people who are very comfortable in the place where chardonnays have this over-the-top buttery um aspects to them which is a flavor not of terroir a flavor of process well then Look at this wine, which is also has a, maybe an additional flavor of process layered on top of it, and find it repugnant. Where it's just it, this, there's almost a similarity between the richness Absolutely. of the two. Just one is maybe more umami, and one is more like fat and salt. It's it's 
I don't know. It just it, it always shocks me when people are afraid of these wines because I find them so pleasurable um, and 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 honestly accessible. I mean, this is this is racy and alive. Like I, I don't know. He's I don't know what he would be. I mean, yeah, I'm sorry. Is, yeah, yeah. This is rad. I should have yeah. kept this. I, I I should have brought something better. For <laughs> um, is there a New York Post wine critic? Um, I think at one point. Steve Quazzo would take it upon himself to kind of rail about what, what, what not finding Bordeaux like? on the menu. <laughs> we once had a, a back and forth in columns. Do you remember the restaurant Renard? Oh, yeah. When, when that opened and he um, kind of bitterly assailed it because it, it, he could, there was no – what he said, there were no familiar wines. Oh, I love it. Um, and then I wrote a, a column – saying, oh, but that's a great thing. And yes. it's not that they're unfamiliar. You know, there's a Vouvray. There's a, I mean, you don't may not recognize the producers, but you recognize the places, and, and there's not there, – it's discovery. Um, and that's sort of probably, you know, encapsulated a, a different – the differences in yes. the point of view. I mean, like, when you go to a restaurant and you know all the wines – it's um, the worst thing in the world because it's uh, an insane markup for wines you've already had. Like, yeah. I expect the, the sommeliers who are, of course, you know, pushing me to do insane things, I expect them to do um, some work and find wines I don't know, right? I've had that same argument about Frenchette. Yes. Not with Steve, but mm-hmm. with uh, probably like good friends of mm-hmm. mine. Yes, of course. Yeah, and especially if you have someone who understands the role of the sommelier is not, doesn't end when you've picked the wines but it continues to when you describe them and to your staff who then describes them to the 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 diners then then that's exactly the way i want that to work i want to go somewhere and be like why did they pick this i've never heard of it and be like a b and c and be like oh that does sound interesting i'll try it well the the good thing is when there is a point of view yeah and it's not oh because the distributor pushed (laughs) it on me yeah (laughs) i mean (laughs) i wanted to go to france for free so i bought it yeah that's also a beautiful thing. And, um, <laughs> we've got really great breaks in our 10 cases right, and palettes. Right, so just, right. just talk to me. Send me a DM. Mm-hmm. Um, please come to our live show. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be great. Uh, it's going to be a musical. Um, we're going to be playing bingo. We are going to have a bingo board. Yeah, it's Definitely true. bingo. If you'd like to come, we will comp you a ticket. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Just think about it. Do you have the answer you right answer now? now? He's not he's, shaking He's no. nodding his head. He's, <laughs> he loves it. I'm uh, like confusing bingo and Jeopardy now. <laughs> no, no. Um, is there anything you would like to to pimp to our audience? Do you have a, a a book coming out or God willing in three years? But wow, inshallah in three years, guys. Um, can can they? Where where can our our um, listeners uh, find you? You can find me in the New York Times every Wednesday. If you read the the actual newspaper, usually posted uh, five or six days in advance of that mm-hmm. Wednesday. If you read us on the web, okay. And um, you can always find me on Twitter and Instagram. Beautiful at Eric Asimov. Failing New York Times at Eric Asimov. Beautiful. And that's it. Thanks, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I am so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye. Disgorgeous.